I mean, and horror always has this, this sort of challenge of writing a character who you believe stays in the situation. Like, I mean, that's the reason why a lot of horror involves being stranded somewhere because that takes like the agency out of it. The character's not choosing to stay, they're stuck. But with Jane, you know, there are times when she's trapped, but a lot of the time she's choosing to stay and finding a way to do that that wouldn't be irritating <laughs> and wouldn't be like, Jane, you're so stupid, what are you doing? Is, was challenging. And that was another reason why this book went through, I think like six full major edit passes. Hi, this is Andrew Rimby from the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I feel like I'm trying to get a gothic tone in my voice because on this winter, uh, very um, cold evening here on Long Island and in the Northeast, because we are about to get hit with a snowstorm, uh, which is going to be, I think, work really well for what we're reading. I'm joined here with Mary DePippi. Hi, Mary. Hello, everyone. So for our February book club choice, we chose The Death of Jane Lawrence, and we are now joined by the star of The Death of Jane Lawrence, the author herself. Hi, Caitlin Starling. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. And I just realized how much of a pun that was with your last name. but <laughs> <laughs> And it is such a good last name, Starling. Mm-hmm. Um, a star is born. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> That's enough. I would go with the I would go with the hello Clarice jokes. <laughs> Personally. <laughs> Good evening, Clarice, I think is the actual line. <laughs> Widely misremembered, but yes. <laughs> well, I think right away with the death of Jane Lawrence. Um, oh, and congratulations. We're recording right when you um well, you can explain, but you're now affiliated with the Bram Stoker. Right. I, the Death of Jane Lawrence is on the preliminary ballot for superior achievement in a novel. And there, there's been a lot of excitement over the fact that it's not a nomination. That could come later. Um, it's a two-step process with the Stokers, unlike some other awards. But yes, it is on the preliminary ballot, which is very yeah, exciting. Congratulations. On yes, that. congratulations. So That's incredible. Yeah. And um, okay. So... Who wouldn't want to read first a gothic slash we'll get into the different genres or even how you define the genres because this is kind of breaking boundaries of genre of gothicness and thriller or horror or how do we define those genres but what a great choice for you know cold winter days. Um, But right away when we stare at the death of Jane Lawrence's cover and we now do have access for some of our listeners if they go to our patreon they can see the video version so that's not just a plug but i'm holding up the death of jane lawrence and you can see this on our social media um so mary and i have been analyzing your cover for about a whole day um of (laughs) what this could be because it's so captivating and maybe what inspired you caitlin for, you know, the hands that we see in the cover of 
Jane Lawrence. That is all uh, the illustrator Colin Verdi's work. So um, when we were talking potential cover ideas, so so generally speaking, um, authors don't have a lot of say in covers when it's coming out from some uh, someplace like St. Martin's Press. That's the marketing team that handles that because they know what people will like at a bookstore. Um, but they do ask for for our opinions, and in my case, you know, they a lot of time they ask for like, oh, do you have a Pinterest board or something of of inspiration? And I had pulled together um, a lot of medical, like old medical illustrations, and some occult illustrations and drawings and stuff. Um, nothing was like it all. It all fit together, but nothing was really jumping out at any of us in terms of design. Um, oh, and some math stuff as well, a lot of math stuff. And the art design team found Colin Verdi's work and uh, he has a, a, a piece, I think, I think it's called Cat's Cradle, that is very, very, very similar, um, just with slightly different coloration and very long, really cool nails, um, but with, and without the ring in the middle, but the hands are still stitched together and different bracelets and different jewelry. And they sent that to me and they would, how's this for a starting place? And so they, and I was like, absolutely, yes. So they hired him and um, he did a variation on that piece that became the art of the cover. Um, and the only thing that I really had input on, um, I, I double checked some of the stitching to make sure it at least mostly made sense. <laughs> Not that like, just, just by tracing, it didn't try it or anything. Um, and then also the discussion of the ring because originally there wasn't a ring on the cover, the hands were just attached to each other. And we were trying to figure out like what kind of design to have the thread in, because all of the mathematical and esoterical stuff we were looking at for sources have very elaborate geometric designs, which works really well with Cat's Cradle, but we, we don't wanna make the, the cover too confusing. Um, and then the art design team was like, well, what if we put this ring on here? And we, I really liked that. And then I remember this is going to have some spoilers. So um, cover spoilers your ears. Are what, be, be aware. <laughs> There'll be a lot of spoilers tonight, probably. Um, <laughs> but I, I was looking at, I'm like, you know, to my editor, I'm like, you know, there are two rings though. You know, Jane is already wearing this ring on her hand. And then she has this other ring. And I don't know. And she's like, well, it's Augustine's ring, clearly. Oh. And I went, oh yeah, that's great. It really kind of brings them into it. Like it really, it really incorporates Jane's husband into this, into this thing. And, you know, sometimes I just kind of forget or it tangled up in Jane's web. And I suppose I forget how rough he has it in the book. And my editor just said back in all caps, he dies, Caitlin. <laughs> it's true. And I, and my response was, she made a new one. It's fine. Um, but yeah, so so that spoiler over on that on that part. But that so that ended up being you know now I really love the the two rings both being on there. And then the other stuff I didn't really come up with it, but it but it showed up in the um, the edits that Colin was turning in. So I'm assuming the art design team did this. There's a locket on one hand on the around the wrist of one hand that it has a a woman's red eye in it, which is plot relevant and. Mm -hmm. The, my favorite thing, the vertebracelet, the vertebrae bracelet around the other arm is just mm. super, super fun. Um, but yeah, no, I'm absolutely in love with this cover and the cover, like, 
I, I am, I am going to thank it for probably a majority of my sales because like you, again, you walk into a bookstore and you're like, yeah, I want that. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. I remember before, I think it was before Andrew even had reached out to you to discuss this. He and I had discussed this book and I remember when he suggested it, I was like, oh my gosh, I remember that book. That cover is awesome. Yes. And I was like, I definitely, that's something I definitely want to read. So, I mean, good on them that was yeah and good on you also you know yeah yeah and I mean like yeah leave me out of it if you're going to come up with something that good (laughs) (laughs) well and it's kind of like a where's Waldo because everything you're talking about has shown me different aspects which is I didn't see the red eye in the locket at the bottom um yeah Jane looking in the mirror which I know well mirror glass the reflection of Elodie well, mm-hmm. and who is Elodie? I really want to know more about that. But um, also the stitching, like, because there's mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, Augustine being um, a doctor, but also there's a lot of wrists being open and blood being let out. So, okay, now I'm seeing what's happening. But I even said to Mary, it's kind of reminiscent of the Greek idea of the fates mm-hmm. and the string that you would cut of life. So, does that have something to do with the sh- like string quality? Not intentionally, but I, I, oh. I have noticed it before and I do really like it. Yeah, but I feel like this could, ha- it takes on so many interpretations, which I love. Yeah. And, and I also, we got to do, um, Colin let me and a friend of mine, um, Daisy D, do enamel pins based off of the hands on the cover as a pre-order campaign, like a limited pre-order campaign, which I don't have any handy right now, haha, handy to show you, but um, we actually made it with drill holes in it. So I hand stitched all of the pins. My husband and I both hand stitched all the pins. Wow. Um, they don't, st- they're not stitched together. Although you could do that. You could take the, the thread that I used and, and redo it. Um, but that was a really fun way to kind of play with how kind of visceral and uncomfortable but also really pretty the whole thing is yeah and the colors mm-hmm. of the title and then your name the white red it's so beautiful like mm-hmm. this is I have to say this is probably you know it's a good way to start off an interview it's one of the most stunning covers yeah, and I'm just, just checking so yeah. um Olga Gerlich also she she did the design after all the art was done. And I think that she's to, to thank, to credit for the fact that the title is not in all caps. And it and it took a couple times looking at the book for me to realize that, that what was standing out to me about that. And then I looked through like all of my library and I found maybe three other books with titles that are not in all caps. And I don't know what how that decision was made, but it's oh. a really cool decision. And it's just this really subtle thing. Like my name is in all cap, capital letters. Mm-hmm. But the title is not, and it, yeah, it adds something somehow. Like there are just so many tiny details that are so yeah. neat. And now I'm just staring at my bookshelf and I'm not going to do it for this whole interview, but I'm like, wait, yeah, you're right. All these titles are in all caps, but again. Usually, the only times when I've seen it not be um, is sometimes academic books that are not particularly well-designed to begin with and um, covers that have handwritten style. Mm. Oh, yes titles but that looks a little bit different because it looks like handwriting Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so how long or when did you first start drafting or thinking um 
creating an outline for the death of Jane Lawrence from that to it's, you know, sending it to the publisher for, you know, final edits. Yeah. Um, I started what would become Jane Lawrence in the fall of 2015, right after Crimson Peak came out in theaters. Okay. Um, and I wrote maybe like the first couple chapters, which did go through some changes, although not many. And made some notes for a future, like where I wanted to take the book. And then I put it aside because I was still working on my, what ended up becoming my first book, The Luminous Dead. Um, both of these I, I wrote before I ever signed with an agent or sold a book. Wow. So I put The Death of Jane Lawrence away and I came back to it the following fall after The Luminous Dead was sort of, I'd, I'd finished drafting it. It was, it had been edited. It was out to agents in query letters, but um, anyone who's ever queried knows that it takes a very long time to hear back on that. So that was just sort of back burner. I picked up Jane Lawrence, started working on it, finished the first draft. It was a very different book back then. And after I signed with my agent and we sold The Luminous Dead, I sent it to her and we, we began the process of trying to figure out why is it it's good, but it's not really good and can we make it really good and what's what's wrong like is it an issue of polish or is it an issue of concept and it ended up being an issue of concept um and you know for instance augustine originally had pov chapters oh. and um in an attempt to make him more sympathetic oddly enough it actually made him less sympathetic it made him very <laughs> irritating and also um he was there through the whole book and Jane was kind of just this long suffering. She just was a good person trying to save him because she didn't think he deserved to suffer. And it kind of was like, well, why are you doing that, Jane? Like you're smarter than this. This is a mess. <laughs> so um, a whole bunch of stuff got shifted around and you know, Augustine gets taken off the, the playing field at about the, just past the halfway point. And now in a way that is completely confusing and disturbing and is a really good reason for Jane to stick around and figure out what happened. <laughs> I also just made Jane more angry. She, she wasn't angry enough the first couple drafts. Then she was oh, yeah. too angry. And I was like, well, why aren't you just leaving completely? So I had to pull it back. And what ended up being the key was, try, was figuring out what Jane's relationship is with the magic that starts coming up in the book and exploring, you know, is she, is she dabbling in magic because of duty? Is she dabbling in magic because it calls to her? You know, is it both, but they vary in intensity over time. And that ended up being the key to figuring out how to make it a interesting book. Hmm. Well, and you mentioned Crimson Peak and I'm not going to say it verbatim, but I do remember I read the NPR, um, you know, interview that you, well, it was in written format. It was just uh, a review. A they review. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, a review. review. Um, I would love it, to be interviewed by NPR, but that yeah. is not happening. Okay. NPR, please interview Caitlin Starling. Yes, please um, do. They should, um, because this is a very well-known novel, um, but it was a very highly praised review, very glowing, because they say that it's what Crimson Peak should have done or how they should have tied Crimson Peak up even though I do remember seeing Crimson Peak in the movie theater and I did really enjoy, I'm a huge Edgar Allan Poe fan and I write scholarship on him. So I actually write on the fall of the house of Usher, which when I was reading your novel, I'm like, 
the house. It's the house. <laughs> the house <laughs> is going to sink. It's going to crush them. And and the house definitely uh, has a, a dramatic ending. Yes. Oh, yes. But also, I felt like that was well-deserved. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of people within the house who we focus on, but I also feel like you, the way you write the house and the way it's described, it's its own character, mm-hmm. which is just incredible. Like that's one of the things I love when authors are able to encompass is when they're able to make their setting or their place as part of a character and less of just, oh yeah, this is the setting. And then, you know, we just move on. Like things just happen here. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's really important in gothic fiction, I think, for the setting to to have an emotional range that matches the characters, even if it's not like keep it's not even if it's not the same emotion that the characters are going through, that there's an arc for the setting as well as the characters. Um, going back to Crimson Peak, I I actually still really like Crimson Peak. I know it gets a lot of plaque. I still think a lot of that was because it was sort of billed as a ghost, like a, a horror movie with ghosts. And instead it's like a really, really classic Gothic romance, Gothic horror, um, yes. complete with the types of plot twists and the and the type of ending. Um, there are things I would change in Crimson Peak. I mean, there is a reason why I started writing Jane after I watched Crimson Peak. Ah. And that has to do with, you know, me wanting to explore certain things that the movie decided it didn't want to. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I well, I, I always like, I like the comparisons. I like seeing the comparisons, but it's really interesting to see how people compare it because yeah, some people are like, oh man, this is so much better than Crimson Peak. And other people are like, this scratches the itch that I still have from Crimson Peak. And that was more what I was going for. Yeah, Crimson Peak was so eccentric in a positive way, I thought, of unanswered questions. And mm-hmm. if anything, <laughs> death the death of Jane Lawrence has many unanswered questions and- um, but throughout the whole novel, it's, uh, I have to say the way you create, um, doubt in the reader's mind, like it's one of the first novels where I just doubted every character. Like I was thinking, Jane, you're hallucinating. Jane, are you in a hospital? Like, Jane, are you- please stop taking cocaine right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she's very nonchalant about the cocaine. Uh, but Maybe that was just the time. Augustine was nonchalant about the cocaine too. Yeah. She learned it from watching him. That's true. Post-World War One, um, maybe. Uh, yeah, she's picking up his habits. But so other, well, I mean, it's hard sometimes, right, of what we're absorbing and what we're inspired by. But, you know, what are some other, Are the, is there other literature or film that you were really, um, like you think shaped the way you were crafting Jane Lawrence. Yeah, I I grew up, I mean, I read Jane Eyre when I was young and really, really it, it, like attached myself to it for several years. Um, there is a Jane Eyre the musical, which is actually fantastic, highly recommend, but but really, but whenever I tell people that, they're like, wait, what? Jane Eyre the musical. Um, and, and so that sort of was just in my hindbrain. It's not something that I was consciously modeling anything after, but it was my introduction to Gothic fiction, mm-hmm. along with stuff like Beauty and the Beast and, and everything that kind of spawned from that. Um, but more specifically, and less actually about Gothic stuff, because in, once you're familiar with the tropes, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of literature to read there, but, and they all are distinct in their own way, but Gothic romance and Gothic horror both have very specific arcs to them in terms of 
melodrama and reveals and, and stuff like that, that I had a fairly decent handle on. For the magic, I ended up reaching for, um, I mean, I did some, I did some additional research after this, but largely there was, there's a podcast that you may have heard of called the last podcast on the left, which has been going on for, you know, over 10 years at this oh, yeah. point. Mary loves them. I love them. I'm the, I'm the true crime aficionado yes. of the ivory tower boiler room. So yes, I'm very yeah. familiar with them. They are, they are my comfort. Listen, I love those boys. Um, but way back, I, so I, I listened to this in 2016 and I think I was still listening to Backlog at that point. So it probably is from like 2014 or 2015. They did a multi-part series on right-hand path magic, which is your order of the golden dawn, Gnostic hermeticism, you know, vaguely, vaguely Christian, very much Orientalist, has all sorts of problems. Um, left-hand path magic, which would be Thelema and Aleister Crowley and that sort of stuff, a lot of the same issues. And modern chaos magic, which is actually what I pulled on the most for how Jane understands magic in the world, which is best summarized very quickly as it's like hacking the matrix. Um, mm. So those three, those three or three series is, um, and then some backup reading to actually flesh out my understanding past some really great jokes. Um, and then also uh, I, one side of my family is very heavy on mathematicians and engineers. And so I was, I, I, I did go through calculus um, in high school and was pretty good at it, but it was never really my thing. Like I could keep up with math pretty well and it didn't scare me, but it was never really my, my thing, my thing, but it is for a lot of my family. And so when I was maybe 12, my grandfather gave me a book called Zero, the Biography of a Dangerous Idea by Charles Safe. Mm. And it is a really, really funny and thorough history of where the number zero comes from in Western mathematics. And it touches on some really weird stuff because it was excluded from Western mathematics for a very long time for uh, theological reasons and metaphysical reasons. Bef uh, first with the Greeks and then with Christianity, they were like, okay, this, this thing that is nothing, then that's a number. And it's mm, like, they, they use it for placeholders for like doing accounting, but they wouldn't use it in math. And then it started slowly getting into math because they were you know, talking to, to the mathematicians in the Middle East and further east of that. And because they were using it just fine, there was no issue there. It's kind of useful, um, but it does weird things. So if you, you know, whenever you, if you've ever gotten like a divide by zero error in Excel or on your calculator, there are certain things you can't do with it, and you can't do those things because they literally break mathematics. They make it stop functioning. If you divide by zero, you can prove that Winston Churchill was a carrot, which is an actual <laughs> mathematical proof that is in the back of that book. Um, so that I read that when I was twelve, and it just it got into my brain and it just sat there until I started writing this book. And I was like, okay, I'm writing really weird magic that is not like slinging fireballs magic. And I have a very, uh, Jane was already an accountant because I had been working as a bookkeeper at that point. Um, and I was like, okay, so she's an accountant. She knows math. She likes math. Okay. I think I can use the zero stuff for that. And then I had to like this is part of where the setting started diverging from real life because um, in the real world, we started using zero and like developed calculus in the 1600s. Think, you know, Sir Isaac Newton was involved in that. Side note, he was an alchemist. It all comes together. <laughs> um, but in this, I wanted a very, for that like Gothic atmospheric reason, I wanted to set this in something very like the late 1800s, early 1900s. So suddenly I have to figure out, okay, what's the impact of delaying people figuring out calculus for that long. 
and all that sort of things. And weirdly, you can actually get away without it for, for quite a while, um, particularly if, and this is another little thing I adjust in the setting, you aren't the dominant empire in the Western world slash the entire world. Um, because where it really comes in handy is in warfare. <laughs> if you, yeah, you, mm. it helps with um, killing people. So if you're not doing as much of that, you can get away with not having it for a while and then maybe get it from your, maybe get books on calculus from your neighbors eventually, which is what I ended up going with for the setting. And beyond all that, because of course that's a huge, huge list of facts. Um, I really like reading medical memoirs, doctor's memoirs in particular. So Augustine came straight out of those. Ah, okay. Well, and then we have Augustine, right? The infamous confessions, um, right? The Roman, was he? I'm trying to think. The theolo the, um, the theological August, Augustine. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, 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 which I know very little of. <laughs> oh, okay. We're not gonna we're not gonna dwell there then. I'm okay. I'm going back to like my ancient Greek and Roman course. But <laughs> yeah, did you? Yeah, there, there's there's Saint Augustine. Yeah, but, Saint um, Augustine. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I don't know as much about him, but um, actually, the the touchdown for Augustine became. I saw the the mini series was made out of this, but it started as a book, um, the Young Doctor's Notebook, which the the TV series version was John Hamm and Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe playing a younger version of John Hamm. Oh, I yeah, heard and it's series. I, I didn't see the it, se- like previous it's a little mini series, yeah, and it's it's about a a young doctor in newly Soviet Russia. And, you know, he, he, I think he went to school before the communist regime took power. And so then he's now been sent off into the boonies and he's has no real supplies and he's unprepared because he's hot. He's, you know, very educated and, and upper class. And now he's, no one likes him. And while he's there and it's told in a dialogue with his older self, uh-huh. who, um, I believe is in jail or possibly even facing execution for a morphine addiction. And it's actually the path of him taking morphine for the, like what builds to him taking morphine for the first time. Um, It's a really, really dark series. It's also really funny, but in that way that Russian dark humor is funny. (laughs) But there was, and and like Augustine is not that far down the path, but there was something about that, um, the deeply flawed, doctor who still is trying to do the best he can by his patients just something about that portrayal versus say like house the the Mm -hmm. young doctor's notebook was was more what I was going for (laughs) yeah and um were you also pretty inspired by Shirley Jackson you know I didn't read any of Shirley Jackson stuff until well after writing Jane somehow Uh, like I didn't read Haunting of Hill House until I want to say 2018 or 2019 okay i mean i I read the lottery when i was in school but like in terms of actually reading her longer stuff and then i and then it took a couple more years for me to read um we've always lived in the castle so like i want it i want to claim that direct lineage but no it just is a happy accident well and it kind (laughs) of just because like the themes in your novel well actually more so the series the way they adapted the series i haven't um, seen it Oh my goodness. It is so wonderfully. I think Mary, you've seen it. What series is the this? The Haunting in? of Hill House. 
No, I have not. Oh, I've, it is, I've been, it's on my, it's, you know, again, it's on my list. Yeah, <laughs> it is so frightening and so um, about trauma. A lot of it is about trauma and how the ghosts are remnants mm-hmm. of your trauma. So when I was reading a lot about that PTSD Jane is having with mm-hmm. the gas and mortar, um, you know, um, and also shells, Augustine the a gas, little bit too. But the oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the Hill House family, um, one of them works in a funeral parlor, like is um, you know, a mortician. So that's why I'm just like, there's a lot of, but again, you're tapping into something in our unconscious, I believe. And um yeah, processing the boundary between life and death. And you know, see, I thought. So you said that you were trying to set it in the late 1800s to the early 1900s. So it's not post-World War I. Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Not really. So again, it's not real world um the 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 main clue to that is is two things one the name of the country is different and um two their relationship with religion is a lot different um it's based in Mm -hmm. some of the post-world war one reactions to religion but it's it's it goes beyond that and their and their previous religion was not christianity Mm -hmm. um so and it was and it was a a considered but difficult choice. There, there was a lot of back and forth on whether we wanted to make it conform to being purely historical or not. Um, and there are a whole bunch of reasons why I, I ended up going the way I did. It's been, it's, it's gotten a mixed response because yes, yeah, some people immediately, people who are coming at my books from like a science fiction fantasy side immediately pick that up and are like, cool, not earth. And people who are coming at it from, who've never read my stuff or coming at it from like a, a psychological thriller standpoint are like, is it supposed to be different? Is it supposed to be the same? And it's it's tricky. But there was a lot of stuff in terms of technology and societal stuff that I I wanted bits and pieces from different times. And so I made this recognizable but slightly off version of the, our world. Yeah, well, and I am so glad you did that because I am of that camp usually coming from historical fiction and psychological thriller and horror, but set in, you know, boundaries that we understand mm-hmm. um so I loved I love that you're kind of just blowing my mind right now <laughs> I'm like, oh okay <laughs> that's what was happening is I I it's okay that I was getting confused with the timeline yes yeah um it's really yeah. supposed to be just this this book all the way through is sort of sit back go with what's on the page mm-hmm. it'll tell you what you need to know at least I hope so that that was the intent um like you know even down to how jane experiences learning magic should help prepare you for understanding what happens in the infamous chapter zero um because if you try and pull in stuff that you know from other things you've read it gets really muddled really fast Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no i definitely i agreed with that yeah and i think that you know, if we can talk about chapter zero, it's again, spoiler, but well, one Jane <laughs> dies, one Jane, yes. and I'm saying zero any. 
I'm not zero. Oh my gosh. See, now I'm saying zero. Oh, any. <laughs> now I'm, you know, zeros. Oh, but oh, any one, uh, yes. Jane, we don't know which one, but she dies. And then chapter zero happens. Yeah, and- the, the Jane that goes into that ritual, the Jane you have been following that entire book is dead as of the beginning of chapter zero. I can confirm she is dead. She is dead. Okay. Yeah. Jane knows that she's dead, which is kind of weird. Um, and Augustine later confirms that she is dead, which he should know. He has his hands literally inside of her abdomen at the time she dies. Yeah. And why is he so obsessed with reaching into women's bodies and grabbing them? He's not obsessed. He has a job. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> he didn't decide that Abigail Yu was going to have an ectopic pregnancy that ruptured. He was saving her life. <laughs> but it seems like he's always found with, well, I know Mary. Yeah, okay, so so yeah, and that that is also, I mean, the, the things that I picked to have him doing, the surgeries that we see him doing are picked to be thematically repetitive. Um, Although I will say I didn't realize the sheer number of abdominal surgeries that were in that book until I had to write up a content warning list for a friend who needed to know, like she was really excited to read the book, but she's like, I need to know whenever there's a surgery scene coming up because I want to not be eating. Um, So I finally went through and like counted them and I'm like, oh God, there's six of them. (laughs) Because originally, so in the very beginning of the book, there's a man who comes in screaming and in pain and he's practically clawed his own stomach open. And Augustine has to operate. And originally in the very first draft, that man just had a crushed leg and it was your, your bog standard Victorian style leg amputation, which was really gross and cool and freaky and was fun for Jane to participate in, but then it didn't connect to the larger plot. And so at some point we decided, my agent and I decided, or I did, I can't, I, I think she was involved by that point that Mr. Renton had to have something they would echo later in the book. And I was like, you know what? He's a magician too. And so you get this really weird abdominal surgery with him. He has a follow-up surgery and so on and so on. But I will point out, Mr. Renton is a guy. So it's not just women that Augustine ends up with his hands inside. That's true. That's true. That is true. But also when you think about the like the abdomen is where all of your vital organs are. Yes. So I mean logically if there's something wrong with an organ especially and, for that time he would have to go in via the abdomen well, and, and regardless um in that time period that and the tech level that they have for medicine that is always a very risky operation for a very long time surgeons would not touch that they would not mm-hmm. do abdominal surgery whatsoever because the in all likelihood you're going to go septic and die Mm. Um, until they had antiseptic technique, which I did give Augustine largely because I think for a modern audience, it'd be really gross for me not to have him washing his hands. So <laughs> they, happened, they, they figured that out. They're on, they're on the late 1800s side for that. But they still just, they didn't have good anesthesia. They had antiseptic te- technique, but they didn't have sterile technique. Like they didn't have good lighting. Um, I actually got to talk to, so one of my stepmother's sisters is an ER doc. And so we, I talked to her. I'm like, okay, what, what surgery, like, what can I do here that is feasible, feasibly potentially fine, but will probably kill him and what will probably kill him. But like, I need it to be a day later. And she wrote me this really great step-by-step, like, these are your considerations. These are going to be the challenges. 
Um, and she, she coined the phrase like the location of the magical insult. She's like, it's gonna depend on the location of the magical insult. <laughs> this is the coolest thing ever. But um, so the fact that Augustine is so willing to just dive in and do these, these heroics or like abdominal surgeries says something about his character in in the setting that he's in which is that this guy is both very good at his job and wildly confident probably overconfident mm-hmm. um both of which end up becoming themes of the book of, of you know there's a point where jane basically sits him down and she's like okay yeah you're not an arrogant asshole like your co-workers are but you still have a god complex like do you hear yourself you're saying that you should be able to save everybody what is wrong with you that's not possible and, and so that, that's why like Augustine has this, this conviction that if he just tries hard enough, he can fix things. So yeah, he ends up just going, okay, sure. I'm going to try and restart this person's heart by shoving my, my hand up under their rib cage and, and squeezing their heart myself. That's a thing that doctors attempted. I was just going to say, that was one of the things when I saw that that was the aim of what he was doing with Elodie, I was like, Oh my gosh. No, I've definitely heard about this. I've seen, or like seen this cardiac massage. It's a real thing. Exactly. Yeah. So I was like, Oh, so this is what he's trying to do. But like back during this time, like it wouldn't, (laughs) it wouldn't work. And especially with no support staff, like exactly that, that is, that, that is actually directly from, so there's a book by, I want to say Paul Kalinthi. I'm going to see if I can look it up real fast. Um, but it, it was really popular when it came out. Um, it's When Breath Becomes Air. Kalanithi, Paul Kalanithi. And it's the memoir of a surgeon who ended up being diagnosed with cancer while he was starting his memoirs. And he, it's so it's about his medical education and his practice, as well as him becoming a patient and having to see that other side of the thing. And it's really, really, really powerful. Um, there is a section in it, but he relates the story of a, like this is a, a second or third hand story. I remember Newland in the opening chapters of How We Die writing about being a young medical student alone in the OR with a patient whose heart had stopped. In an act of desperation, he cut open the patient's chest and tried to pump his heart manually, tried to literally squeeze the life back into him. The patient died and Newland was found by his supervisor covered in blood and failure. Well, and it goes on to say, um, Medical school had changed by the time I got there to the point where such a scene was simply unthinkable. As medical students, we were barely allowed to touch patients, let alone open their chests. What had not changed, though, was the heroic spirit of responsibility amid blood and failure. This struck me as the true image of a doctor. Wow. The whole book is really, that that book, I have so many quotes saved from it because that book deals with that boundary of life and death and deals with what is your obligation as a physician? Um, and to, and, and, um, Andrew, you had actually sent you. You had a question about one of the lines that Augustine says in the yes, book. Yes, yes, yeah. Which is, um, "Death always wins, except in a world where it doesn't," and mm-hmm. that is partially taken from this book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, see, we had assumed an onerous yoke, that of moral res- mortal responsibility. Our patients' lives and identities may be in our hands, yet death always wins. Even if you are perfect, the world isn't. The secret is to know that the deck is stacked, that you will lose, that your hands or judgment will slip and yet still struggle to win for your patients. Wow. So that's where that line came from originally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, that, that line always gives me chills when I, when I think about it or when I read it again, because it's so, 
it's both accurate to medicine and is just so ominous given where the book goes from there. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's like- also, I think, slightly arrogant, like the way that Augustine, you know, because Augustine is the one saying it, you know, with his slightly God plot, God, God complex. So it's almost like, you know, yeah. yeah, you know, death usually wins until it doesn't, you know, like. Right. And, and he has this, this really, like really ambivalent relationship in the original version of the word of ambivalent relationship with, with magic, because on the one hand, he's cast it aside as clearly I can't do it. But also he's sitting there going, but if I could, I would be great and I would be able to save everybody. And so there's a moment where he thinks that Jane has just saved a patient in a way that he's never been able to. And he like, they don't, I don't spend a lot of time on it because that would have been a whole can of worms to open. But he basically is like, you did magic. And Jane's like, no, like, I literally just believed that this person, I just spent time with her. Like it's not magic. And it's left ambiguous whether it was magic or not, because by the rules of how magic is set up in in the book, it could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, but Augustine gets so fixated on it that he almost doesn't care about the patient anymore. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. He just sees you did an impossible thing. I want to be able to do the impossible thing. Yeah. His ego is getting in the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All the time, which is also yeah. why I think I really fell into Jane's, which I think you want us to do as a reader is fall into Jane's psyche where she keeps having this image of Elodie's body ripped apart or, and that's why I keep thinking he's this villainous evil doctor who's just wanting to tear apart bodies because Jane has these very macabre visions of him. She has, yeah, she has, she sees things without context and without context, surgery, especially in this time period is absolutely horrific and it's butchery. Yeah. Um, the only, you know, there's there's a whole book that I'm, I'm blanking on the author that's here, but it's called The Butchering Art. That's about the wow. history of um, Dr. Joseph Lister, who did not invent Listerine. Someone used his name for that, but he did come up with antiseptic and aseptic technique. Um, but just, you know, like the fact that originally for a very long time, rich people didn't go to the doctor to have surgery, don't go to the hospital because the hospital was full of disease. You would get, you would go septic and die. The do- the surgeon would come to your house and operate on you on your dining table. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I you just have to tough it out. Mm-hmm. Like there's like, aside from ether, there's no anesthetic. Like you're awake during it. I want to say for my memory, from an a novel that I had read about um, Francis Glessner Lee, who is like, who is considered like the mother of forensic um, science. She had a similar experience. And I want to say it was late 1800s, early 1900s, the same situation. Her family was rich. The doctor Mm -hmm. came to the house and was like, they rented a hotel room, you know, and she had her tonsils removed in a hotel room. Yeah, yeah. And it's and you had better survival, op, uh, you know, survival chances then because you weren't. They didn't understand that there were pathogens in the air at that point. They would actually get, settle into the wound. They thought that the that the the bad stuff came from the wound itself, hmm. and was just going to happen or not happen. It was it was ridiculous. Um, like from from our perspective, of course, at the time, you know, it took them a long time. Like they they had seen stuff under the microscope of okay, those little things look alive, and but then they just refused to connect the two images for a long time to realize oh, if they're animals, we can kill them, and they come from somewhere else. They're not spontaneously generated. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe because the ether is 
if there's like one word that has been seared into my mind is ether. <laughs> and um, again, I want to shout out Mandy Weston because her reading and performance was incredible. Like I loved when she did the voice, her different voices and the way, um, well, I want to ask you, Caitlin, because I know every author has a different relationship to their audiobook. Um, like, have you listened to clips of Mandy West? I've listened to clips. I have not okay. listened to the whole book through. And I think mostly I've, I've listened to her. So I was in the very fortunate position where my publisher arranged for auditions. Oh. So I got to listen to four or five different performers read and I got to pick from that list. And I picked Mandy Weston because she nailed so much about what I, she nailed Jane's personality, even in that short clip. And like, they, they weren't given much context. I think they were just given like a very specific set of text to go on. So like knowing nothing else about the book, um, she nailed it, except I think she mispronounced Augustine and that was it. Um, and that's the thing where you correct that anyway, you give them a, a list of how to pronounce all the, the places and names and weird words in your yeah. book. So I, that's not, yeah, everyone mispronounced his name, I think. So <laughs> it's fine. Um, but since then, yeah, I've, I've listened. The only thing I did, I think, was I, when I got the files is I skipped over to chapter zero to see what it sounded like. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I get, I get very kind of shy listening to my own stuff. I can, I can perform my own stuff because I'm too busy reading to think about how it sounds. I can generally read my own stuff quietly. Um, listening to it though, it's far enough removed that I start getting really afraid I'm gonna hear an error. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then it's set in stone and I can't fix it. So, or I'm gonna hear, I'm gonna hear it and it's gonna sound really stupid, <laughs> like, which is not the reader's fault, which would be my fault. And so I, I generally don't listen to my audio. But I'll let you know, though, there's yeah. none of those should be any concern because I spent 13 hours with <laughs> Mandy Weston's voice and it is just the crafting, the pace, the, um, well, and she really, I thought, captures Augustine's pleas at the end. Like he is so desperate for Jane to help. And especially, you know, when Jane is trying to work her magic, mm -hmm. um, that with Pace, how, because I'm sure you worked a lot on this with the process, we get a really different Jane from beginning to end, her character arc has to be one of the largest arcs ever because when we first met Jane, she is very almost withdrawn, like stoic, mm -hmm. not really interacting with the stimuli around her. But then there's like this almost manipulate, the manipulation that starts to happen where I'm questioning how is she manipulating people around her? Like, or why does she want to get married to Augustine? Like, what, yeah. what, are, think, what are the intentions? Yes. I think that she really starts opening up around the time all the house guests arrive. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and, and before that, when she realizes that Augustine's been lying to her, I feel like up until that point, she really is just trying, you know, she, she's learning about parts of herself that she wasn't aware of before. Um, both the fact that, you know, she actually is capable of romantic love, it seems like, and is interested in pursuing it. And, you know, she's having deeper feelings for Augustine than she intent she expected or even intended or wanted. And she's making adjustments. And she sort of, I think if, if he didn't have those secrets, 
her marriage to Augustine would still have produced a lot of change in her um, as she sort of, yeah, grew into herself and allowed herself to, to want to need other people because she's very, very closed down at the beginning of the book. Um, and as a side note, she's also, I wrote her as, um, like myself, as autistic. So, you know, there, there's some stuff going on there just in terms of those are defense mechanisms to help her deal not only with the trauma in her past, but also just, you know, overstimulation, things that, that, that don't fit right with, with how she's been very good at, at basically carving out a safe place for herself in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and Augustine sort of throws that all into, inadvertently throws that all into, into disarray and she has to kind of put the pieces back together. But I think when she sees how Augustine behaves with his colleagues and she's forced to also lie and be nice and friendly, that sort of starts a chain reaction of Jane realizing that she's capable of doing whatever she has to do, um, which gets tested and she, she walks back and forth on that. And there are times where she really wants to just go back to being herself. And like when she, um, after her first direct encounter with Elodie, when she runs basically all the way back to town and she goes to her guardian's house and they're not there and she just sits in her bedroom and they're, you know, and, but she just, whenever she wants to go back to being herself and being and like the way things were, the plot doesn't let her. And then the rest of the time, even when she has the opportunity to go back to being herself, her pride won't let her. And I feel like that's like a huge like life thing as well. Like in some instances, like I could definitely see that internal struggle with her. Like almost like for me, I read it as her knowing she could be this type of person and kind of wanting to be that. But that is also what is scary and what is new. So in some ways, and again, just like life and with people, you know, sometimes it feels safer to go back to who you were because it's more familiar. Yeah. And and again, that's just something I loved about Jane. Like, she's just so relatable, which I loved about her. Like, even though she's in this crazy circumstance, I was just like, I could be Jane. There are a number of people I know who also could be Jane. I mean, and horror always has this this sort of, challenge of writing a character who you believe stays in the situation like I mean that's the reason why a lot of horror involves being stranded somewhere because that takes like the agency out of it the character's not choosing to stay they're stuck I mean even my my first book the main character is stuck down in a cave um and you know she can decide to get out but to get out takes days and days and days and by the time she gets even close something may have changed to to affect her motivations but with Jane you know there are times when she's trapped but a lot of the time she's choosing to stay and finding a way to do that that wouldn't be irritating <laughs> and wouldn't be like, Jane, you're so stupid. What are you doing? Is was challenging. And that was another reason why this book went through, I think like six full major edit passes was, was dialing that in and dialing her character and, and her and her emotional state in because, you know, back when she was really angry, it's like, yeah, why doesn't she just leave the book? Mm-hmm. So I had to make her less angry. <laughs> and then it's like, okay well why isn't she that angry so now i have to figure that part out yeah well like in in a way especially because i'm wearing the stephen king (laughs) shirt (laughs) you know the shining is a really good example of how king plays on that you know um abandoned hotel 
right? It's we're back into the abandoned mansions and on a hill. It fits that, but you're right. I, you really helped me think, Caitlin, about that in horror because, like, it's tougher, you know, an author who writes horror to focus on some, like, that's why I always ask, why is there not a lot of horror in a city? Because it can be, I mean, it's happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some really great stuff. Like, just Attack the Block comes to mind immediately. Mm. Um, But Attack the Block plays on other forms of social dynamics that cause isolation because it's in um, basically tenement housing and and people who don't trust outsiders and stuff. Um, But yeah, I mean, like, there's, on the rare occasion that I have, like, taught any writing workshops or whatever, um, one of the things I tend to, to challenge this one time, I think it was for high school students. And the thing I challenged them to do was come up with a premise where your phone working in a horror situation makes it worse. Because usually in a horror situation, the phones get removed somehow. There's no cell service, the phone gets broken. Because if you have your phone and it works, that's your lifeline, right? You've got everything you might need. So I was like, okay, that's one way, removing the phone is one way to not have to deal with that. The other way is you build it into the story. Uh, So like Jane, her getting stranded has implications beyond her being stranded, right? It sets things off with Augustine that he's not prepared to deal with. But when Jane goes back to town, she can't go for help for reasons that are outside of herself and hopefully don't feel too contrived. Like the fact that her guardians have left. And of course that causes a bigger issue emotionally because they didn't tell her they were leaving. And that's, <laughs> that's upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, and people's expectations of her in town and their perception of her sanity or lack thereof. She can't go to the magistrate because she would be the number one suspect. And she even is the number one suspect in her husband's disappearance. She can't go to the priest because there's no organized religion anymore. So she can't go to the priest and say, hey, this house is haunted, please come help me. Um, and that was part of the reason why there's no organized religion is because I wanted to take that away from her. I wanted to take the opportunity away. Um, and so it becomes less about like her deciding her telling herself she can't go and get help, which you can you can sell that with the right protagonist, but it becomes more of, of when she does try and get help, the world doesn't appear to be there to support her. And that reinforces feelings she already has about the world and her place in it. Yeah, and I think just to follow up, one horror, well, psychological horror, The Sixth Sense, I think is one of my favorites for a city gothic horror. But again, it's kind of what I love about the death of Jane Lawrence. What you did, Caitlin, is you combined the isolation with also questioning your protagonist. And that's the same thing in The Sixth Sense is you really, you're not questioning until the end, but you know, spoiler about finding out he's a ghost. Um, I mean, if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense now, yeah, yeah. it's on you. But it's like a spoiler. Right. But what's you. most frightening in The Sixth Sense when the young boy is seeing the ghosts or, but they all have a mission or a purpose. And I felt that way in Jane, the death of Jane Lawrence. You know, sorry if I keep shortening it to Jane Lawrence. Oh, I do all the time. I just call it Jane. Jane. When I'm talking yeah. I like that, Jane. But, yeah. um, you know, or to Dodgel, but yeah, that, that's more. <laughs> but it's like what I found so thrilling and 
still am pondering are those visions she has or the just the noxious gas enclosing mm-hmm. her parents or what's happening to her parents. Why are they being gassed? Like there's a lot of, you know, it's from some kind of warfare, but there's no, nothing is tied neatly. And I think that's really frightening to just have these snapshots. There, there was a, so my first book, The Luminous Dead had a, when we sold it, it was like sort of your general monster adventure horror, you know, woman goes down into a cave. There's a whole bunch of psychodrama with the person who's she's on the radio with her, but the real horror is, you know, oh, she starts getting chased through the, the cave by monsters. So that was really fun. We turned, we, we sold it and the editor went, okay, the monsters are great, but what if we got rid of them? <laughs> and we went, what? And he's like, stick with me here. Just explore what that would be like. And so I was faced with the issue of, so if there are no monsters or there are no confirmed monsters, then it becomes very plausible that everything is all in the main character's head. She's hallucinating, she's losing her grip on reality. And how do you make that scary as opposed to cheap? Because, Mm. you know, we're all sick of though, it was all in her head or it was all a dream or whatever else. So I had to find a way in that book to make it all being in her head the worst possible thing that could be true. Mm. And those edits were done before I dove back into working on Jane. And so I pulled some of that into Jane of like, depicting mental instability of varying degrees. Um, I have my own personal intention of of where Jane falls on that spectrum during the book, but she definitely is not always in her complete right mind, um, if only because of the sleep deprivation and the cocaine. And how to make balance that so it's interesting, it doesn't feel cheap, and it introduces uncertainty without um, well, it, the, the uncertainty it introduces is distressing in and of itself. Like you're not just going, okay, if it's all in her head, it's fine. Or if it's all in her head, everything's lost. Like you're kind of, you're, you're kind of hoping simultaneously that it is all in her head and that it's not all in her head because either one is actually pretty terrible. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading the part where again, spoilers, she sees ghosts aren't real. Yes. And I just love how that line is repeated because not only was it important to repeat that because it's stuck in her head, but it's also stuck in my head because then I'm like, okay, then what are these creatures? Like that, exactly. what is going on? Then? Yes. <laughs> if they're not real, then what are the other possibilities? Right. And, you know, how much worse is it? You know, because again, the idea of thinking, oh, that these are just ghosts is somewhat comforting because then you go, oh, okay, they're just the spirit of the dead person. Right, right. And they've got the personality of the dead person. They've got the goals of the dead person. And it's like, okay, well, wait a minute. If they're not actually the person who died, well, first off, some of the people we've seen might not actually be dead. So that's good. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we have no idea what the goals of these things are. Mm -hmm. And that's also just brings another level of terror and horror in and of itself, because again, if they're not the thing you know, you know, what's comfortable within the horror genre, it, you know, if I can even say it changes the rules. Yeah, exactly. And it just, I, my anxiety just shot right up. Cause I'm like, what are these things? What is happening? I don't understand. 
but again I feel like Jane feels that same way and just the way that not only the way that you write it but the way that it's paced out and how it's explained how it comes to her which also that gave me chills as I was reading I was just like (gasps) someone did fan art of that like a week after the book came out (gasps) and it's so amazing and really freaky looking how can we find this um oh gosh I have it it's on my Twitter, but at this point it's so buried because it's been several months. Okay. Well, um, I'll make sure that I somehow, you know, we will find it. Message yeah, you yeah, you can yeah, message, it. yeah, get ask me for it after this this wraps, and then I will find I will hunt down the link for you. Okay. But it is it is extremely good and extremely freaky. Like I was I was in the car, we were going to pick up a friend from the airport, and I checked my my mentions on Twitter and just started like shrieking because it was perfect. Um, but yeah, but like even before that moment though, there are hints, like beyond the immediately preceding scene, which starts making you go, okay, wait a minute, what, that's kind of weird. The first time Jane ever sees them and the second time she ever sees them, they don't look like people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the second time she sees them, Augustine is there, he's seeing his dead patients and she's not seeing them. Not that there's nothing there, there is something else there and it's not Mr. Rented, it's not so-and-so. And then that kind of, Jane sort of doesn't think about that afterwards because from then on, every everything that she sees takes on the appearance of somebody that she knows and that she thinks has died because of her. Mm. Mm. Well, so we are sadly at the end of our time, but is it okay if we just ask you, I know Mary yeah. has one final question that, um, you know, is the last of our interview questions. Can we ask it to you, Caitlin? Yes. Okay, Mary. See, honestly, until Andrew confirmed that he had the same question, I was like, okay, so clearly I didn't miss something here. Is Jane really alive at the end? Yes. So it's it's complicated. So um, so first off, did she die? Yes, that happened. Augustine is correct that she died. Did she come back to is is Okay, the final chapters are not narrated from some kind of afterlife where she's living out what she wishes would have happened. She's not in a little bubble that she's made for herself. Um, although I have read that theory on Reddit and it's super cool, um, which is basically that, you know, because at one point she describes with the circle, she could have built the circle up high enough that mm-hmm. basically time would have stopped and she would have been protected. So it's not that. Okay. It's really cool, but it's not that unless you really want it to be in your head, in which case go for it. Um, the real question is more is the Jane at the end of the book the same Jane who died on the slab Hmm. because Augustine is not the same Augustine who died right so she's already made a new Augustine my intention was always that it is still Jane there might be things that are different about her that she may or may not be aware of because it is very tricky to put everything back where it goes, which she found out with Augustine in chapter zero. Mm. Um, Because, you know, she thinks afterwards that she can't do magic anymore. Although the very last line throws that into doubt a little bit. Um, But yes, the intention is that she she did die and came back, but she might be changed. Mm. Okay, well. That answers a lot of our questions. But again, 
there's still so much ambiguity, but that's what we love about your mm-hmm. novel. And, and the, the reason why it's important to me that like, and the reason why I'm so sure, aside from the fact that's how I intended to write it, is that yeah. there, there is no greenlit sequel, but I know what the sequel would be. Mm. And I'm trying to convince my publisher to let me do it. Oh, please. Mm, which yes. would require the Jane B alive. Please, I, please. I, I hope. Yes, please. I want a sequel. <laughs> publishers, please let her write yes. this sequel. We want to read it. Okay. We want this. And sequel. it goes a lot. It goes a lot more into um, the whys of the magic in that world, mm. and also it's gonna be it's gonna be weird. It's possibly weirder. Definitely like more more magic soaked. And uh, Doctor Nizamiev is going to be a main character mm. if I'm allowed to do what I want. Um, I like and yeah, and, and Augustine may figure out that something happened to him. Oh, oh I but like, this like I said, none of yes. this is confirmed. I don't know if it's ever going to happen. If it does happen, I just know. I just know where I'm going with it. Yeah, That's and you're ready to write it. It sounds like yes. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I said that was the last question, but because <laughs> I, I feel like I always won contemporary novels that I love to turn into something visual. So is there any speculation about TV or film? We're shopping it, um, Ooh, but no one, no one's nibbled yet. Um, I think, I think our aim is probably for like a limited series, kind of like Haunting of Hell House, that that seems to be a, a decent fit for it as compared to like an ongoing show or a, or movie, but yeah, no, nothing yet. Okay. But fingers crossed we'll be ready we're gonna manifest all the great things for you caitlin starling and you know hopefully we get that sequel because we're gonna bring you back on to do another (laughs) probably you know blow our mind of what's happening so this was wonderful thank you so much and you know we hope the listeners i'm sure hopefully you all are not too frightened um but I think there's a comforting element in the novel as well. But um, it's good to be frightened. Exactly. You know, go out <laughs> of your comfort zone. Exactly. You know? Well, so Just read this book, okay? <laughs> yes. Read The Death of Jane Lawrence by Caitlin Starling, please. And we want to thank you, Caitlin. And, you know, this was wonderful. Thanks for having so me. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed today's episode. This is Andrew Rimby. I'm the executive director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team. And none of this would ever be possible without my amazing team members. So they include Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, Jaren Usta, our marketing director, and our two interns, Nicole Arguello and Kimberly Dallas. So we do hope that you go find us on our social media. So Instagram, at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We are at Ivory Tower Boiler Room on TikTok and Facebook, and also at Ivory Boiler Room on Twitter. We also have a really exciting Patreon. So patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. You will find unedited audio, unedited videos. You also can get exclusive merchandise of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So just check it out because if you're not getting enough of us and you want to hear more go on to our patreon we also have a really exciting event it is happening this saturday february 12 from 4 to 6 p.m 
in Manhattan. So if you're near Manhattan, head on over to our website, ivorytowerboilerroom.com, and in our events section, you will see that we are having an open mic poetry evening with Pen and Brush, an amazing art gallery. We had them on our podcast last week, Don Delicat is the executive director. So if you haven't, make sure you listen to our episode with Dawn. And we're going to have poetry, uh, tea, wine, and also they're going to close their special exhibition with Deborah Jack. So Deborah is actually going to read some of her poems. It's going to be a wonderful event. So again, please go to our website to find out more under our events section. We hope that you all are staying safe, healthy, peaceful, sending all the good, empowering energy. And we really thank you for sharing our podcast, following us. It all really matters. So without further ado, here is Sophie Anderson's, and Sophie Anderson, sorry, um, and Sophie Anderson, I always call her Sophie, um, her beautiful composition, Capricorn, which fits so nicely with this horror theme. Enjoy, everyone. Mm-hmm. 